The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, our show today is about a wonderful organization called the World Privacy Forum, and we are going to be interviewing Pam Dixon, who's been on our show twice before. She is just always doing wonderful research and writing and just she is just filled with wisdom to share with us so let me tell you if you haven't heard her before i'm going to give you a little bit about her background pam dixon founded the world privacy forum in november 2003 she's an author and a researcher and she's consistently broken critical new ground in all of her research work and her writing and she's written highly respected studies in the area of all sorts of area of privacy and she researched and wrote the very first report to exist on medical identity theft. Now, this was back in 2006 when we were just first starting to get people call us about medical identity theft. And she has brought the top, this topic to the public really for the first time because first we used to talk about it like it was financial privacy, and but it really encompasses much, much more. So medical identity theft now is a widely acknowledged issue, and there's been other studies about it. And back in 2008, a California law was passed based on Pam's wonderful research. She's written other influential studies in the area of workplace privacy, job privacy, job search privacy, financial privacy, internet privacy, and so much more. And she recently has completed research in India, And she also has a new reference book that's coming out this year. It's called Online Privacy by ABC-CLIO Books. Pam was a former research fellow with the Privacy Foundation at Denver University Sturm School of Law. And she's a former columnist for the San Diego Tribune. And she's written seven books for major publishers. And she is just the best. She's terrific. And we're so glad that she's joining us. Thank you so much, Pam. We have so much we want to say to you. And uh, find out all the great things that you're doing. Oh, well, it's my pleasure to be here. And thank you for the invite. I appreciate it. So tell us, um, what is the work number database? I know that's something that you write about. Yeah, that's an interesting situation. Basically, that's what uh, we call a Wild West database. The Wild West database is a database that's basically not falling under any regulations uh, that it really should. (laughs) Right. So when you're looking for a job and you go to put your resume toward an employer, they'll look at your resume, and if they want to talk to you, 
they'll they'll go and um, you know interview you, and then if they are really interested in you, typically what they'll do is they'll ask you to sign a consent to do a little background check on you. They'll sometimes check your credit, although we don't love that, but they'll just do a little what's called a pre-employment background check. And you have to sign a, a piece of paper allowing this to happen. This is because you have rights under the Fair Credit Reporting Act that, that give you these abilities. And basically what it does is it provides uh, a real slowdown on the train tracks. And uh, if you uh, get a pre-employment background check that has any problems whatsoever, you have all sorts of rights of correcting it and disputing it and so on. And, so and accessing it first. Yeah, that's a big one. Yeah. Being able to see it. This, yeah. Right. And so these are important rights. And we kind of, we're used to these rights when we go and get a job. We're used to someone having to ask us before they conduct a real background check on us or do a credit check. These, it's required that people ask you for this. Well, the work number is a whole different thing. What this is is a Wild West database, and it doesn't fall under the Fair Credit Reporting Act at this time. Uh, I think there's a real argument that databases like that should, but good luck uh, getting Congress to pass a law to, to do that. But basically what it means is that there's a whole bunch of data that's relative to your job search that's in a database, and employers can tap into that and get information about your uh, your prior um, prior, especially your earnings, and you don't know if it's correct. If it's incorrect, it's really impossible to correct, and uh, you really don't really have substantial rights uh, as to what's in that database, who puts it in, who takes it out, and so on and so forth. And it's a, just a real, the growth of these unregulated databases is really bad for consumers, and that's not the only one. There are, there are many, many hundreds out there, actually. So what else is in there besides earning? Like, is there is there anything about discipline? What what kind of stuff? I haven't seen one of those. Have you had a chance to see any of those? Well, obviously, it's hard to get those. It's not transparent. But what other stuff besides earning is in there? Well, it's not just... Well, for the work number, that's fairly focused on past earnings. I mean, that's, a, that's really what they want to do. They want to make sure that and you can't tell an employer that you made $80,000 a year more than you actually did. Right. It's kind of an old, actually, it's, it's interesting because it's an old-fashioned approach to paying people. You pay someone what they deserve, not what their past indicates. And so it's, it's just kind of a, it's not a great uh, service, I think, ultimately. But this is a focused database. That's pretty much what it does. There are other databases that are... Um, used in addition to these kinds of databases. I mean, a very popular database right now is a database, and there's a number of them, by the way. Oh, yeah. Um, but there's a very popular one is a database that scours public record information and online information that's publicly available uh, through Facebook and Twitter. And what they'll do is they'll just simply sell it to employers as part of a public or web pre-employment background check. And there are dozens and dozens of companies that do this. And that stuff is just awful because it's everything that people have posted about themselves and forgotten all about. <laughs> right, right. Or somebody posted about them perhaps even, you know, yeah, that, that they didn't even put exactly, in there. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, the problem is is that people don't realize that this kind of material is up for sale and it ends up in a big old database. And what tends to happen is what I call database layering. You can layer 
the information you get from work number, the information you get from, you know, for example, a shoplifting database. Maybe you, you know, were inappropriately uh, put into a shopping database or someone with the same name you have. Was right. That. And then it gets layered with your social networking material. And it's like, oh, it becomes a very, very robust picture of who you are. And, and then there's this profile that, that is so erroneous in so many ways, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we call I, I actually testified before Congress on this whole issue, and I called it the modern permanent record. And that's really what it is. It's a modern permanent record. When I was growing up in school, when I was in elementary school, my teachers, to motivate me to take a good spelling test, would say, you know, this spelling grade goes on your permanent record. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> and, you know, now the permanent record has really shifted off into kind of a, the digital realm, and we've got... Um, digital databases, and it can be our modern permanent record. But you know what? The scary thing about today is that it could also be just someone with the same name you have. And and it happens all the time. Those are the kinds of people that contact me all the time. There are so many databases. There's also this social search database. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I've actually gone, and, and last year I went and spoke with three members of the Federal Trade Commission in D.C. to complain about all these databases because whenever there's a database that has some influence about your character or your worthiness for work or your worthiness for credit, any kind of database like that is supposed to fall under the Fair Credit Reporting Act. But all of these databases that you're talking about are skirting around it by saying, well, that's not the intent. But, you know, when I look at the Fair Credit Reporting Act, it doesn't say the intent of the one who makes the database. It's how it's used. And and that's the frustrating thing, that if it's used to determine a, a person's eligibility for a job or credit, it should give us the same rights that we have under the Fair Credit Reporting Act, which you talked about, which is access, the ability to see it and correct it and make sure that it's correct, Right. I agree. I mean, I agree with you completely, and and I think that that's actually going to be one of the privacy fights of our age. Right now, there's a lot of attention on online privacy and cookies and ads being delivered online, and I, I think that that's going to get resolved over time. I actually don't think it's the ultimate fight of all fights right now. I think that these databases and how they're used in people's um, very, very um, life impacting moments. I think that's really what we're looking at in terms of privacy harms because when you hit someone at the insurance level, at the medical care level, yes. at the job level, at the even getting housing level, I mean, credit checks and these kinds of checks are often run on people who are trying to rent homes or apartments or qualify for loans. So right, right. It's very frustrating. And, and these the folks who have these databases insist that they're not violating the Fair Credit Reporting Act because the Fair Credit Reporting Act doesn't apply to them. Yes, and you know what? Uh, there is. I brought a case to a friend of mine to litigate that is just basically on point on one of these databases. And because the Federal Trade Commission has not taken any action yet, I think they're investigating some of these, but because they haven't, we, I have gotten uh, one of my clients to get a litigation attorney in which I'm an expert in which we are going to say that this particular database is used for keeping people from getting a job or getting credit or getting things that are 
really under the Fair Credit Reporting Act. So we'll see if private litigation will make a change because the Federal Trade Commission, unfortunately, I guess doesn't have the resources to go after all these databases or do the research. I don't know why they're not doing it. but they, I don't they, know why they're... I have to tell you. <laughs> they're really the, the governmental entity that this would fall under their purview. Right. And they have the the ability to subpoena that information. And enforce and this. Yeah. Right. And they're just, right now, in terms of some of the stuff, they're being a paper tiger. And it's unfortunate because we need a regulatory agency to actually enforce and some of these issues and also to look forward and break some new ground because, I mean, we... One of the things we did in the past two years is we wrote a very detailed uh, petition to the Federal Trade Commission to look at online websites that only offered opt-outs through the mail. Here's all these online companies, and it's a lot of, like, you know, U.S. search and stuff like that. Well, yeah, and it's such a pain in the neck to have to do it by, by, you know, if they're an online company, then they should be able to receive an online email, right? Right. But that's not how it's been working. So, right. And it's, you know, it's really frustrating for consumers to have an online company take their information online, but then your opt-out is slow and laborious and through the mail. And I think most consumers at this point are not going to be as likely to opt out if they have to do it through a mailing process. It's just too annoying. Exactly, <laughs> you to, exactly. You have to go buy a stamp, schlep, the, schlep an envelope from somewhere. Right. And schlep to the mailbox, and it's just ridiculous. And, and, a post, yeah, and the postage is expensive. At least they should be able to call, you know, I call know. or email. Yeah, it's, it, it is. I think it's deliberate. It's deliberate to make it difficult to do it. Absolutely. Well, it's, it's not easy, and it's hard to know a person's or a company's intent, but uh, it's certainly not based on cost, I don't believe. Some of the arguments I get back are, oh, well, we need to authenticate different people. Well, people seem to do just fine authenticating purchases online, and yeah. for some reason we can't authenticate people who are trying to opt out online in a, in a safe and healthy manner. So I think that I think there's a lot of issues yet to be resolved in this space, but the biggest issue of all is that these Wild West databases need a marshal, and that marshal is the FTC, and we're going to have to get them under the Fair Credit Reporting Act in some way, shape, or form, because these databases are being used to make uh, life decisions about consumers, and it's very, very problematic. So what do you what do you recommend for the people who are subject to this work number database? Is there something that they can do? I mean, how they they can't see it. Is there no. anything that they can do? Not substantively. I think that one thing I encourage everyone to do is actually to go ahead and file a complaint with the FTC's Consumer Sentinel. And what that does is it, it doesn't, it's not going to get you like immediate action from the FTC. It won't. But what it does is over time, it builds up a pattern that the FTC can then later on look at and use in cases that they actually do bring. And I do know that that is the case with the Consumer Sentinel and, and kind of how it works. It's just a very large database of consumer complaints. And it's very fascinating. We, um, we just completed a map an interactive map of a year of medical identity theft complaints from the Consumer Sentinel. It took us about a half a year to actually collate the, the raw data from the FTC. And you had to do like, a Freedom of Information Act request for that? 
Uh, yeah, I put a um, Freedom of Information Act request in, and then it took uh, three people here to um, actually uh, crunch the raw numbers. It was actually not that simple. No. So, I mean, it's a, it's a lot of data in that database, but it's, it's worth the effort, and it's, um, you know, it's worth complaining for that reason because it goes into the database, and you, you get this eventual record of, you know, databases that are having an impact on consumers' lives. So when I'm real interested now, when you talk about this, this all this work that you did, I'm sure you're going to come out with another report. But can you give us a little hint about some of the major findings? Well, I can't give you a hint about the major findings of the new report, but we did publish the map already. Oh, okay, very yes. good. Yes, the the map was just published a couple of days ago, and it's and it's on our website. It's an interactive map. You can literally go on our website. And it's the first thing you'll see. It's a, an interactive map of, it's basically you can see a year of medical identity theft. And then when you get to the map page, you click on any state and it'll zoom in and you mouse over the various cities to see how many cases of medical identity theft were in each city. And that were reported because sometimes people do not report to the Federal Trade Commission. Right. And that's, what, that's, that's exactly the limitation of a study of the Consumer Sentinel database. However, it does give a striking geographic right. snapshot, and that's that's really, I think, the first observation that we made here is that, and it's new, by the way. I mean, medical identity theft statistics have been very challenging to compile because no one's really done it for a long period of time. So we've been doing it now since 2006, and when we first came out with data about medical identity theft, we said, okay, it is about 3% of the total of uh, regular identity theft. So it's about a quarter of a million people a year who are victims. Right, right. In totality. But that's pretty much all we knew. But now we can refine that greatly and we can say well, there's between 3 and 7% of people who are identity theft victims who become medical identity theft victims. And guess what? Depends on where you live. So there's a geographical component to this particular crime. And it's a very strong, strong uh, trending, and it's a real important pattern. We haven't seen this uh, pattern before, uh, just simply because the data was not analyzed yet. So this is really the first publication of this geodata, and we're really, really proud of the work because it was really challenging, and it's out, and we're happy about it. We're, we're putting our uh, new report out in about two months. Oh, great. So that's yeah. at worldprivacyforum.org. And so just, you know, like at the map, and I don't have it in front of me right now, can you just kind of give us an idea? Is it mostly cities and, and you know, any states? Can you give us at least from what the map kind of shows us? Yeah, let me pull the map up right now, as a matter of fact. And I just want to say what great work, while you're pulling that up, what really great work that Pam has done on medical identity theft. And in my new book, I actually mentioned her report and, and made sure that people knew to go there because she has done the most. Um, the Poneman study, and I, I kind of wondered what you thought about the Poneman study. I think they said there was like their, um, from what they had, they thought there was about 1.25 million. Is that the correct number? 1.27 million victims yeah. last year? Well, the study was funded by industry, so I, I really I don't quote it. Um, the, the study actually has larger numbers than we have, which is interesting. Well, they did it by phone. You know, uh, Larry Poneman does these things by telephone. Yes, it, it's right. funded by, by industry, but, you know, they actually have a whole thing where people call up on the phone and, and just call consumers, and they have a whole, you know, they, they, they try and do it in, in the most... 
you know, ethical manner. So, I mean, I thought that was really kind of interesting, even though it was, um, you know, an Experian-funded report. I, I thought right. it did come up with some interesting things about family members using each other's. And, you know, I mean, that has happened, and I, we've heard about it. We've, we've had a lot of victims of medical identity theft that ruined their whole medical files. So we, we are real familiar with that. But you did you get a chance to pull it up now, Pam? Oh, yeah. Um, basically, what happens is that you can, when you look at the map, you'll first see a map of the entire United States. And every incident um, from 2008 to about February 12, 2009, that was reported is on the map, literally. And what you see is that Florida is, and what we did is we actually hired a data visualization expert in New York to visualize the data for us after we had it. Great. And so you can interact with the map, and it will show you where the hotspots are. So Florida is an extraordinary hotspot for medical identity theft, the whole state. The fraud Texas. capital of the world. <laughs> Texas is a hotspot. Arizona is a hotspot. And unfortunately for us, Southern California is just as hot as mm. uh, Florida. It's pretty tough. Now, when you zoom into the map, then you can, um, you can actually go city by city. So San Pedro, California had four incidents. Um, I'm looking in your neck of the woods, Long Beach, 17, <laughs> and this yeah. is all in just one year. Wow. Ventura, Thousand Oaks, Chino, Dana Point, Corona had nine. So Aliso Viejo had one, um, Los Angeles, 50, and 50 is done a lot. So it's the big, it's, it's the more too. densely populated areas, huh? Well, it's. Not necessarily. Um, we did a linear regression, and we looked at the census data and compared it with this, the crime data. And there's not a, a direct linear relationship between the population and the amount of theft. Mm. There's very, very highly populated centers that don't have high theft rates. So there's, there's a different um, nexus at work here. And uh, certainly one of them has to do with the uh, <laughs> incidents of electronic health care systems right. in the area. And it also has to do with the um, availability of robust uh, health care uh, facilities. Right. Um, so, for example, North Dakota doesn't have a single case reported last year. They have a city large enough that should show up on the map. Uh, Nevada should have... Uh, a lot of incidents in Las Vegas. They only had 24 incidents. But see, they don't have the same amount of health care per capita uh, for, as, for example, Colorado. Colorado, um, all through Colorado, Denver had 38, Aurora had 9, Colorado Springs had 12. So it's not even the same cities. There's, there's just very strong geographical trending. Hmm. So there's something that isn't not going correctly in some of these areas. And I think that um, it's worth looking at what that is, because even in the Southern California region, you know, San Diego had 21 incidents. Um, you go uh, back to Encinitas, one incident. So, I mean, it's Murrieta, Loma Linda, uh, Hesperia. It's not just the highly populated. Right. It's just all over these particular regions. And we actually... Um, in our upcoming report, we have some 
uh, thinking as to why that's happening. And, and I'll save it for the report. Right. And then we'll have to have you back again when the report's done. <laughs> well, this is a very, this is really the first time we've seen this geographic trending. And it's a very strong trend. And it's, it's really um, I mean, you look at the map and it's just right in your face. It's just shocking. And you're like, what on earth? So so getting back to the question you asked me, so let's say that you live in North Dakota. What's your risk of getting medical identity theft compared to a person who lives in Miami, Florida? Yeah, much more in Florida. Different. It's a different risk depending on where you live. Right. And I hate to say it, but it is true. If you live... In Nevada, your risk of getting medical identity theft is much lower than if you live in California. Um, it's just crazy. I wonder what's going to happen when everything is electronic <laughs> all over the country. Then it it will just multiply. Just It seems like that will make it so much easier, don't you think? Well, it does become much easier in many cases. Um, it really depends on how you set this whole thing up. Something so interesting is when you look at Texas, San Antonio has 47 incidents, but Houston... And Houston has some great medical centers. I know I, I have friends who have gone to Houston for their cancer center because they're so well known for their cancer center. Right, and Houston only has 32 incidents. So Houston compared to San Antonio... San Antonio is much smaller. Yes. So why do they have more incidents? So see, certain regions have more issues. It's, it, it's actually, there's a real regional factor mm. to this crime, and it's something that no one's really taken a hard look at before. So that's, uh, you know, the where of this crime is one of the things we're really looking at right now and analyzing. You are going to have to give us that report because we're going to have to have you back because, believe it or not, we are just about out of time. So you promise you'll send that to me and we'll make another time to go over that report because it sounds fascinating. And I also want to know when we talk about what you think that we should be doing and what kind of legislation we need and what kind of accountability we have to have by the medical industry, because I know you have some great ideas for that. I'd be happy to come back. And one thing I would say is that anyone listening to this, the most important thing a patient can do is just get your medical records before you need to. That's yes, it. yes. And we're going to send everybody to worldprivacyforum.org and pamdixon.com, right? Yes. Okay, thank you, Pam. We just love you, and we appreciate you so much, and uh, we wish you the very, very best with this report, and you will send it to us, and we will do this again. Okay? Thank you so much. Okay, Pam. Take care. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Listen to archived interviews, see our upcoming guests, listen, go to their websites and see what's going on, and write us questions and comments about what's important to you in the information age. Thanks. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.